Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. In our 10-part series entitled, Because Jesus is Lord, we're exploring the practical ways in which the Lordship of Jesus impacts our everyday lives. We hope you enjoy, and you can check out more at churchinthecity.us. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew for me. Uh, I'll get there in a second. To introduce myself a little bit more, if you don't know me at all, my name is Christian. I am one of the elders here. Uh, I have a wife who is a mother of three gorgeous children, and uh, she's not there. That's why I looked where she was. So uh, (laughs) we moved to Chicago eight years ago to attend the Moody Bible Institute. Moody? No Moody students? They're all gone already? Yeah, there we go. It's free to express yourself here, yeah. So I still work at Moody Bible Institute in the distance learning department and have the privilege of being over the undergrad programs and then getting to adjunct teach a bit. So that's been a joy. And uh, along with really being based at a local church, it's been really interesting to live kind of two worlds. But everything is meant to be in local church. It's meant to be grounded in the local church. Regardless of what you do, this is the place of family and belonging. And I hope to today to, to have the, the veil kind of uncovered a little bit more. I know we talk about that a lot, but I want to hit on something that, that's going to open that up a little bit deeper. One of the things I love to do uh, in just m- me observing culture and society and the things that people uh, talk about and teach on and learn about and better themselves in, uh, one of them of late has been on the concept of leadership. And I've, I've read a bit about it, I've watched some talks on it, and uh, Today I'm, I'm going to give kind of a, an ongoing uh, comparison between some thoughts uh, on, on one guy in particular and then comparing that to, to really the, the leadership of Jesus. The topic of today is actually trust. We're going through a series called Because Jesus is Lord. Steve started with uh, the aspect of, of kingship and Jesus is king and the heart of a king and, and Hugh un unpacked this concept of love. And then if you were here last week, um, we had a great Ephesians 4 weekend uh, with Ron, who is here. But so we're kind of on the third from, from Steve to Hugh to myself, and we're going to un- be ongoing on the, the theme of Jesus as Lord and some elements of that and the fruit of that. And today is trust. Trust, I want to, to take a different, a different bent on it because I can't help myself. And uh, one of the ways I'm going to do that is, is by talking about leadership. So do we have a picture on uh, the Obama picture? This is a picture of Obama giving the Congressional Medal of Honor to a captain named William Swenson, who was in Afghanistan in uh, 2009. He was leading a team that got ambushed, and a medevac helicopter came out and was obviously rescuing the wounded. The guy on the helicopter had a GoPro camera, so there was quite a bit of real HD video of what transpired that day. Uh, Captain Swenson was was seen on that camera uh, dragging a wounded soldier who'd been shot in the neck, dragged him through live incoming fire uh, quite courageously, which is why he got the Congressional Medal of Honor, put him in a helicopter, which was all on tape. But the, the odd part of, of this dynamic is, is that he stops. He just doesn't chuck them up there. He lays them down, pauses, bends over, 
and kisses him on the head. What is that that causes someone to, to live with that sort of emotion, realness? I'm kind of stealing this story from, from uh, a marketing and author expert named Simon Sinek. He gives, he gives this uh, story that when he saw this, he just kind of was blown away. He talks all the time about the types of people that he wants working in his organizations and the type of people we should all want to work in our organizations. And how do you get people to work, with, work for you with the blood, sweat, and tears and that sort of thing? And he saw this, and he just he said he almost lost it. Now, what causes that, and why can't I have people like that working for me? We kind of, kind of scoff at that because, well, he's a soldier. It's, just, it's war versus business or whatever else it is in your organizations that you're in. But he goes, my initial thought, he says, is, is that ah, it's, it's just because he's a better human being. That's why people go and fight and risk their lives for people, right? No, he said. His research says he's not actually a better human being. He says it's the environment. It's the environment that causes someone to serve with their blood and sweat and tears. The sacrifice is the environment. And I was thinking, if, if that's true, then maybe everything Jesus said might actually be true too. <laughs> the reason why I want to compare these sort of things is, is uh, really for, for the heart of getting at what the kingdom is really all about. We talk about kingdom constantly. Kingdom this, kingdom that. It's all about the king and his kingdom, which is absolutely true. And if, we, you, if you just let it gloss over your mind, you may miss something really big. The kingdom is about the rule of King Jesus manifesting itself now as it is in heaven. And whenever we see something in society that reflects the ways of that kingdom, we should perk up. We, we often as Christians want to take the route of, oh, is this my opportunity to, to, to share the, the gospel of, of salvation for sins and Jesus dying on the cross? Sure, can't say that too many times. It's fantastic, but sometimes we almost manipulate, we manipulate situations to give this kind of rehearsed spiel when what we should be doing is looking for ways that the kingdom is manifest and then seeing how is this pointing people back to the king? I'm going to explain this a little bit more, but the point is, is the kingdom is everywhere around us. And in leadership, there's an area of kingdom that if we pick up on it, we can start developing these environments everywhere we go. And that environment is safety. Cynic asks the question, why don't I have people that work like that for me? And he makes the, the comparison that in the military we give medals to people who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that others may gain. In business, we give bonuses to people who are willing to sacrifice others so that they gain. And he goes kind of backwards, right? And yes, it's, it's that, that tension of, oh, well, well, good business is just, you know, good business. To an extent, what if it's your business? What if it's the people working for you? He goes, <laughs> when he asks people like this captain and other military workers, 
really anyone that he observes that's serving other people, why do they do it? Why do they do something of courageousness? The answer is always the same. They would have done the same for me. They're just picking up on the ways of creator God. If we all actually believe that we're made in his image, it means that something of creator God is inside every human being on the face of the planet. It's not just we pick up good Christian morals and we try to invoke that everywhere we go. No, it's, it's that we understand that we were created by a perfect, all-knowing, all-loving Father. And that there's an orphan planet that's longing to know their father. And they can start picking it up in different ways. When they see sacrifice, when they see the blood, sweat, and tears of one for another, of people looking out for each other, they go, this is what I was created for. I don't know all the ways this works, but I know this is how I'm supposed to live. I'm supposed to live selflessly. I'm supposed to live for the person next to me. I'm not supposed to live with this ongoing fear about myself and just in this defensive, I'm all out, to defend myself against the world. This is the ways of God. This is kingdom. And we don't need to get intimidated when people start to pick up on kingdom and they don't attribute it to God. That's your job. Not to butt in and say, well, you know, that's God. No, if you continually live and develop environments of kingdom, people will come to you and you will have something to say you will also have something to say when people are not establishing kingdom when they should. When another leader is taking advantage of his people, you you have a voice that that ear will listen to and say something. It's all kingdom. Things are getting a little bit somber in here, so I'm going to lighten it up. So 50,000 years ago, (laughs) <laughs> this guy, this guy Simon Sinek, he, he talks about he talks he talks about creation in a sense. He talks about how we have this deep sense of trust and cooperation that we all want to have when we work with each other. And he goes, the problem is is that trust and cooperation are feelings, and they're not instructions. So you can't just instruct someone to trust you. If you're a leader, you can't just say, "Trust me." Although we say that all the time. Have you ever had someone say trust you and you're just kind of like, I can't trust you. <laughs> you're horrible in so many ways. <laughs> Everyone have a, anyone have a boss that's just talked about, you know, you're having crises at work and, and they're trying to establish a workplace. It's like, we just don't have enough trust in the workplace. We need to reconcile these things. You guys need to trust each other. Trust me as your leader. And everyone's sitting there like, we can't trust you as our leader. We know you. <laughs> We know you don't care about us, and you're not looking out for us. It's difficult to establish trust. And what is that? If you don't feel like the person that's leading you is looking out for you, you don't feel safe. It's the number one issue with marriage. Why does my wife tell me, not all the time, from time to time, is that she doesn't feel safe at times. And I'm like, what are you talking? This took me at least, we've been married now, nine years, this month, thank you. And it took me, oh, she's in here now. It it took me almost nine years to learn this. 
uh, I was going to say five, but, but uh, she's here. So, so, so safety, when, when, when a wife tells a husband, I don't, I don't feel safe, what is she really saying? Well, this is what I responded to, to her typically is, uh, sweetheart, I, I don't really say sweetheart, I'm just kind of softening it. Uh, sweetheart, I, I don't know what you are talking about. We are very safe. We haven't even had a break-in at our house, like, ever. Uh, Our children have never been harmed once. Like, you were perfectly healthy in every way. I mean, I know Chicago is not the safest of urban areas, but you're pretty safe, pretty safe. safe. She just, you know, I go to the Lord, and Lord, pray for my wife, Lord. She's got got some issues, and... (laughs) And no matter how perfect I, I have led her, <laughs> she keeps saying the same thing, and she just doesn't get it. And, and so I eventually figured out that the, the issue of safety is because she's really trying to tell me is moron. <laughs> I don't feel like you're looking out for me. That's all she's saying. When, when a wife feels like the husband is looking out for her, she doesn't feel like she needs to fight for herself, and therefore most fights stop. Easier said than done, but it is easier once you know what the root is, and that's the root, is she needs to feel like you're looking out for her. If she feels like you're really just trying to survive for yourself, she feels like she needs to survive for herself, and survival is ugly. It's really, really ugly. In the workplace, when you have a boss where you feel like that boss cares that I get better and excel. You feel safe. And when you feel safe, you can take ownership. Uh, where's Jack? Jack. Jack Masteller. Hi, Jack. You shared a cool story with me uh, a few weeks ago about uh, Deloitte, the company you work for. It's okay I say that. He works for Deloitte. And just the hiring process Deloitte has. They have, what, three people that are in charge when you interview with them to prep you to be the best you possible at your interview. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, how many of you have, have experienced that before in an interview? Oh, that's, so that's not normal. I have never experienced that. I have typically, even if it's a really nice person, I, I feel like they're, they tend to be trying to dig up, you know, not dirt, but they're trying to find out, okay, you look really fantastic on this 8x11, but uh, how are you going to ruin my life if I work with you for the next few years? <laughs> that, that's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking. And, and so what's not typically in their mind is there is gold inside of you, young man, and I'm going to draw that out if you choose to partner with me in the next season of your life, and we're going to change this company for the good and the better. And it will change your life for better, it'll change my life, and everyone else around us, it'll be for the better. That's not really the concepts that, we're, that are floating around our heads in an interview. But <clears throat> this is Kingdom. This is a company that says, well, everyone may be doing it this way, but it's a whole lot of waste of time to hire an employee that's going to work for me for a number of years if we didn't figure out what they were capable of from the get-go. Everybody looks good on paper. I want to find they're even better. I want to find the, the roots of why they are going to succeed at our company. And if we have the mentality that everyone we interview, we want to see their best because some people don't interview better than others, I'm literally going to 
invest in multiple people preparing each person that I'm going to spend time interviewing so that I get the best version of themselves possible. That's fantastic. That's also kingdom. Because Jesus could care less about the junk in people's lives. He entrusted men as his disciples before they deserved it. He, in fact, looked at pretty much the worst possible candidates for a rabbi to walk around uh, first century uh, Israel to, to try to build a kingdom around. Fishermen, tax collectors, uneducated losers is who he chose, is what he did. But he saw something in them, and he invited them to do something. Simple. Follow me. That, that word has changed my life this week. Um, I have another illustration that Dave Coates gave me this week when I was visiting his lovely little connect group. This is a pretty common, how many have seen this before? It's circled the, the waves of social media, I think. And it's a pretty cool illustration. The top, it may be a little tough to see, you've got this boss sitting up there in his uh, task chair. That's what you call those. And, uh, and he is authoritatively commanding the people to march on or pull on. As opposed to the bottom half where the leader is in front, pointing forward, leading from the front, leading by example, right? If the top is A, the bottom is B, which one would you like to have as your leader? B. Are you sure? Are you still praying about it? Okay, B. Okay, B. Is it because a lot of you were realizing where your boss is sitting? Okay. <laughs> there is a sense of authority. You know, the, the boss has authority, um, and that's fine. But, but that will only get you so far, and it won't get trust and cooperation in any sort of organization. It won't work in the home, it won't work at work, it won't work with your friends, it just doesn't work. It'll get people to work for you, but not with the blood, sweat, and tears, and definitely not with sacrifice. The leader that leads from the front, those people know that he's for them, she's for them. Why? Because we're actually in this together. Everything Jesus did was from the front. When he says follow, it's his initial, uh, I think I have the verses up there from uh, Matthew. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to just go ahead and read it. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew uh, 4. And the, uh, we'll do, I'll start at 17. I think I have 18 up there. We're all familiar with uh, the time where Jesus comes back from his, his initial commissioning going out into the wilderness and being tempted by the enemy. And then in verse 17, it talks about his message when he starts preaching everywhere and going, repent for the kingdom is at hand. I've talked other times about repent has a different connotation than we often know. But his message of repentance, it's about the kingdom of heaven. It just says a sentence. Topic of the kingdom. And then verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The only thing I want you to, to hone in here is that it's about follow me. Get behind me. Don't just do what I'm saying. Rabbis would do this. There was an entire religious system at the time. The Pharisaical and the, uh, well, those who were running the religious system, running Israel at the time. That's not how they, that's not how they led. 
Interesting enough, the very end of Matthew, Matthew written primarily to the Jews, the end of Matthew is all about the authority being reestablished to mankind. All authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus led before the authority was established to the people he was leading. All right, I'm going to have to connect that a little bit better. Okay. Jesus spent his entire ministry as a leader over 12 guys. That was really all he cared about. He invested in 12 guys and then left. We realize that. He changed the world by investing in 12 guys and then he left. And the authority that we have in our brainwaves by which people tend to lead, he never actually had it. I'm I'm talking now practically with the people he was leading. Obviously, we can talk about the dynamic of the authority of earth. He came back to get the keys back, the authority of earth from the devil, because Adam and Eve had given the authority back to the devil when when they had been given the, the commissioning by God to fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply and so forth. They sinned. They sacrificed that. And then we have Jesus coming back to get it, but he doesn't do it to the very end. So what's he doing all in between? What he's doing in between is he's teaching 12 guys what sacrificial leadership looks like. And he starts with, follow me. The voice of the creator. I, I bet you they had no idea what they were doing. Why am I following this guy? He's really awesome, but it doesn't really connect from my head to my heart. There's just something going on here. And it's that breath of the one who's leading from the front, who's saying, follow me. I'm going to make something out of you. If we take that attitude in everything we do, that you honestly have the commissioning of God to establish these environments of safety and trust and leading everywhere you are, it has no matter whether you lead an organization and your CEO or you don't lead anyone. When you walk into a room, You can carry something. I gave this example the other night. There's this janitor at Moody that just, he he commands the presence of God when he walks into the room. He must be in his 70s. He's probably been working there for 20 years. I don't get to see him as much as when we move buildings, but um, he'd be in there multiple times a day. And every time I see him, I knew I was going to get blessed. Why? Because he would bless me, literally. He would, he would literally say, oh, bless you. How, are you. how are you doing today? How's the weather? How's anything? Just hallway conversation. But the guy literally, I was offended at first because this guy was a faker and obnoxious. And when I would see him at you know, 9 a.m., I walk in and, and I'm like, you are, first of all, back off the caffeine. And <laughs> second of all, like, I know we're a Christian organization, but there's a certain level of happiness that's, you're a faker. Let's be honest. <laughs> It's like, I, what I really wanted to tell him was like, look, I'm not your boss. Like, I'm not going to fire you no matter how bad a job you do. Uh, just, you know, you know back, back off a little bit. Then I, then I realized uh, after a couple of years is this is the way this guy lived. He's, he's a janitor, and he probably has been for decades. And when I see him after a while, at first, I, you know, it was kind of like one of these things when I'd see him every time it was a little bit abrasive and whatever. 
all of a sudden, after a while, I realized that when he would walk in, like, the bathroom, he always would walk in when I'm at the urinal and, and would say, you know, and, and have to say something. And he's, like, squirting, like, he's, like, squirting love potion and happiness all over the mirrors and stuff. And I'm like, what is it this guy has? Uh, he had presence. He had the presence of the king. He blessed every single person, says something about Jesus every single time. He commanded the atmosphere around him, whether it was just me and him sharing a urinal, not the actual one urinal, but I mean the, the bathroom as a whole. If it was just me and him or, or, or it was few people around, the guy carried something. It doesn't matter whether you're leading an organization or you've got just the people that you interact with. He established a place where I felt safe around that guy, I'm not going to lie. I, I would probably trust him to, to uh, you know, if he wasn't going to probably... He, I mean, I'm telling you, he was really old. I could not believe he was still working. I, w- I was going to say I would entrust him with my children, but there's no, no way that... Anyway, that wouldn't work. Um, so the point is, is, is trust and safety. These environments, whether you're a mother, whether you are a janitor, or whether you're a CEO, you can establish environments of trust and safety by simply looking out for the people around you. Uh, another example that this guy, Simon Sinek, gives uh, of this dynamic, uh, he was in line at, a, at an airport, Uh, Airport, lots of examples of those. Who's flown before? Yes. Okay, now let's think non-Southwest flights for a second. Non-Southwest flights. You're standing in line, the person is angry, uh, or just they're as they are. And and guy in in section six tries to get in, and they've only called until section five. And person at the front goes, "Uh, no, sir, you can't get on. Why are you even trying to get on right now? I've only called section five, something like that, right? Well, Simon Sinek says, he goes, why are you being so rude? You don't have to be this rude. We're not cattle, and you don't have to treat us like cattle. And she goes, sir, if I don't do my job, I could lose it. And he goes, well, she just told me everything I needed to know about that situation which was that her leaders invoked fear on her, and everything she did was by fear. I now can't remember if he brought this up or I just made the connotation, uh, but how many of you have flown Southwest, and they, they have kind of an obnoxious cheeriness, especially at that 5 a.m. flight out of Midway? <laughs> but <laughs> they're a little different, right? Yeah, so I'm not saying they're better. I actually... To be completely honest with you, I still don't like flying Southwest because I want my seat. I want to know what my seat is. And I really don't care if you're that rude to me, especially at 6 a.m. because I'm probably going to be a little rude to you. But the, the point is, is that Southwest has employees that take a little bit different bent on how they do things. They, they tend to have a little bit more freedom to invoke their personality, which is why they say the most atrocious things on, on the PA system, such as, like, I've had people joke about, like, we're probably not going to go down, but if we do. Uh, that life vest under there is going to come in big handy. Like just just kind of like brushing it off, like no big deal. This is a fun joke for you. Uh, and, and I've noticed that they just in general just seem to just be a different breed. And I don't know all the reasons why, but he, he even brings it up about the culture. Um, and I think, I think part of it is that they feel safe. They, they have a different culture in the way that organization works. Uh, now, don't take it too far if you work for an airline. I'm, I'm just giving a, a little bit of an example. I've even reflected on this in the, in, uh, the news. Um, and uh, is Chris Callahan here? She's probably traveling on an airplane right now because she works for an airline that's not Southwest. But I, I asked her this the other night. I asked her this first, so I, in, in a non-offensive way. I asked her, is, have you noticed, Chris, when you see in the, the news 
It's typically this time of year and, and on in the summer, where someone's getting kicked off of an airline uh, for being scantily clad or something coming out of Vegas or some party town. Uh, I feel like it's always Southwest that's kicking someone off, off a plane. Does anyone else resonate with that, or am I just making that up? No? No? I see a few heads nodding, even though no one's raising their hands. Okay. So... I feel like that might be the case. And, and the reality that she said is, I think that's actually true. And I said, do you think it might be because Southwest employees, even though they're not told they need to kick someone off a plane because they're just inappropriate, they feel freedom, like they're not going to get fired if they just take initiative to something that's just not right. Whereas other airline employees are, are just too like, oh, I can't go there. Because it's not in there, they don't have like some manual. That was what the news always saying. It's like, so what is the policy on this? Is like when the dress is here versus here or here? What is, what is it? They didn't have one. It was that these people were essentially feeling like they had the freedom to make the call. I'm like, and you, ma'am, can get off the plane. <laughs> or here's the blanket. And, and they just took initiative. I thought that was interesting. It's just something to think about. How organizations can establish cultures that affect the way people interact in exactly the same type of scenarios. Just a thought. Just a thought. Okay, moving on to another, another uh, scenario. Again with organizations, and I'm going to tie this down. Cynic um, says this, leaders set the tone. To put safety in the lives of people inside the organization first means that you sacrifice the tangible results so that people remain and feel safe and they feel like they belong. And when you do so, remarkable things happen. He made me nervous at first. Like, it's like, kind of sounds a bit like socialism initially. And I'm American. <laughs> Norwegian American. So, uh, so they, so he's kind of sounding like a bit of a socialist at times. And then I realized, well, he's not really talking about politics here. He's simply talking about leaders and organizations and how a leader, one leader, can transform the way other people have life or don't have life and the remarkable things that happen when they choose to act a certain way. So just take it for what it is in that. He says, if the conditions are wrong, we spend our time trying to protect ourselves from each other, which inherently weakens the organization. I mentioned earlier, he goes back to creation and he talks about how 50,000 years ago, we all were, as his belief, which is a common secular belief, that things were kind of in chaos and that we lived kind of in what they call the tribe. Or the tribe was essentially established so that people could feel safe and people could look out for each other in the midst of danger because that's all the world had was this dynamic of danger. And he said, we still have these dynamics of danger. The only thing that's safe is what you can control inside the organization. And I go, that's depressing. That, that is really depressing. And, and to most people, that's how it feels. I, I would say to most Christians, that's still how it feels is that we, we generally live in a world of absolute danger where we feel like we have no control and, and we just are trying to, to get through and doing the best we can. And we look out for the people around us and we establish little tribes to help us get through and to, to establish little communities of safety. Yeah, does that resonate kind of how the world generally feels? Well, I thought, one, it's like, well, well that's it. That's the connection point. He's picking up on the ways of the kingdom. We need to belong to a family, to a tribe, to feel safe. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what he said until you start freaking out and going, well, he just needs the gospel preached to him. He does, and I'm about to do it. So 
so this, but I don't have to devalue everything else he's saying. Because he's picking up on more than the church does. Which is what? The world needs to know that we've got a family. And a father that wants to know them real bad. And that they're never going to have fully a content and belonging sense of knowing who they are and why they are on this planet until they meet him. Everything else is just managing what you can. You can still pick up kingdom. You can still go in and he can still teach on the dynamic of families and organizations and leadership and all these things about being safe and they're all good. They're all sound. Like I said, they're all kingdom. But they still don't get you back to your identity and ultimately your family and who you're created to know. So from that point, I still want to continue on a couple of these other examples, which are, one, the CEO, Charlie Kim of Next Jump, is a tech company, and he established this lifetime employment principle. He had this idea that if uh, your children were screwing up, would you fire them and get rid of them? And he goes, so I'm, I, when I hire an employee, they are an employee for life. And if they have an issue outside of something like literally endangering the rest of the, the company, we're committed to, to seeing them through. And, and it's a big commitment. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. I'm not saying it works. <laughs> but, but, but he's saying that the complete opposite of what people think we should do is often what the best leaders do. He's giving that as an example. Why do we get offended back in uh, the crash of the, the markets back in, what, 2008, nine around there, when these big bank CEOs were getting their millions? Why was that offensive? Would anyone be offensive if uh, we were giving 100 million bonuses to people like Mother Teresa or, um, you know, charities, people that gave their lives to something for the betterment of others? Would we have a problem with that? No. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's, it's funny how Warren Buffett, one of the richest people on the planet, gave his wealth, or at least he has entrusted his wealth when he passes on, to the wealthiest guy on the planet. Why? Because the wealthiest guy on the planet, Bill Gates, or he was the wealthiest, is he still the wealthiest? I think so, roughly. Uh, he's given now his, the rest of his life to the betterment of humanity. And Warren Buffett says, that's what I want to give my money to. So I'm going to give it to you, not because you need it, but because I think that you're doing something with it. So what is that principle? That principle is, is that our issue, really, when people give money to something, or when people get a vast amount of money, the issue is not the amount of money. I would argue that in almost any, any amount of money you could have, you could give it to a certain situation, it wouldn't be, you'd have no issue with it even if there were other people still suffering over here, for that exact reason. Because Mother Teresa, she engulfs a, a concept of trust and safety because all she did was look out for the, less, the lesser. That's all she did. Well, these banking CEOs, they sure seem to be violating some deep-seated social contract, which is, screw everybody else, I'm taking my bonus and running. And that that tended to upset a vast majority of the American public. <laughs> right? <laughs> Great leaders would never sacrifice the people to save the numbers, he says. They would sacrifice the numbers to save the people. Uh, I understand there's the tension of there are real numbers. I'm not really getting into that. I'm giving that as an example. Can we start to think differently, maybe? Here's another example. 
Bob Chapman, he runs a, con- a company called Barry Waymiller. In this same time period, uh, they were down 30% or $10 million. And his board came to him and was like, got time, it's time to make some cuts. And he goes, we're not, we're not letting anybody go. And they're like, well, we are, we are Barry, uh, because uh, Bob, sorry, Bob is his name. Uh, we are going to cut people because uh, we are bleeding money, and that's what you do when you bleed money. And he goes, uh, no, this is what we're going to do. He ma- and this was the key. He made the announcement to the entire organization, and he says, four weeks unpaid vacation to every single employee, CEO down to secretary to top to bottom. And, uh, but then he told them why. He goes, it's better that a few of us suffer a little bit, or I'm sorry, that all of us suffer a little bit together than for a few to suffer a whole lot. Which again, like, initially was like socialism, right? <laughs> this is not American. And, and I was like, well, again, this is not politics. This is a leader of a company, his company, that's deciding that I'm going to do this differently. You know what happened? The employees that could uh, take five or six weeks vacation unpaid traded it with those who could only take one or two weeks. They saved $20 million. Double. No one lost their job. Amazing. Right? Sounds an awful lot like Acts 2, does it not? With the community of people. Did anyone watch the AD series going on or still going on? I, I, I've actually really liked it. But I, I didn't like how they did this part of it because they made it look like the, the disciples, Peter in particular, was, was kind of mandating that they give up their land and their stuff, which is not what happened. The scripture says is that people on their own initiative started coming to them, randomly giving them their stuff and saying, for the betterment of the community. The whole point of the scripture was is that the leader didn't ask them to do it. That was the whole point. Sorry, it was a little annoying when I saw that. I was like, I was looking forward to that. And then they screwed it up. Okay, so, so they saved double this company. That's just kingdom right there. That is, that is what a kingdom business looks like. And, and you, what I love about that is you can't just say, oh, okay, Mark, you run a company, so when you, uh, you know, are in financial need, just make sure everyone takes four weeks vacation, unpaid. Like, there's the, there's the solution. No, it, it's not going to work on... On, you know, just because they did it and it worked for them doesn't mean it's going to work for them. It means that this is supposed to inspire people that when you have a crisis in your company, maybe there's a kingdom solution that doesn't look like how every other company does it. And what I'm asking you to do is to start thinking that, hey, maybe this is the standard of what I'm supposed to do in my, in my work life, in my business.